on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you. How are you? Uh, no, Sally, this week we're still in COVID lockdown. Lots of Australia is, and I'm thinking of everybody who is living through it at the moment. Uh, it's uh, seemingly endless, but there will be light at the end of the tunnel if we could all get vaccinated. A lot of misinformation and uh, fear out there in the community about the benefits of vaccination. But one thing is clear from all of the data that is coming through from the current outbreak, those that are vaccinated are least likely to end up in hospital, least likely to get sick. The vaccines work. So if you can do, if you can do, get vaccinated and uh, help to shift the needle on how this pandemic is going. Sally will be with us again next week. She's uh, unable to be with us today. So uh, we'll fly solo. We'll sail solo today. Because on today's episode of uh, On The Job, we're going to see, whilst the world has been living with the pandemic and having to adjust and change the way that we uh, go about our business in the world and how we deal with one another, one thing has remained constant, and that is the need for us to continue to trade, to continue to deliver goods across the world globally, to export and import, to try to keep the economy ticking over. And that work predominantly falls at the feet and on the ships of seafarers all over the globe who are trying to continue to do their job, and that is sailing the oceans and delivering and picking up cargo so that we uh, can uh, continue to live relatively as normal as possible. But the problem is seafarers are paying a huge, huge price as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic, so much so that On our oceans at the moment, there are around a quarter of a million seafarers on ships who cannot get off and go home once their work is done. Basically, we have this archipelago of ships that have become prison hulks for seafarers who are not allowed to disembark in fear that they might catch or transmit the virus. It's a hidden secret of our global trade in pandemic times, and that's what we're going to be talking about on the job today. On the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. The International Maritime Organization is the UN's agency looking after the welfare of seafarers and also basically policing the global trade on our high seas when it comes to shipping. They are, at the moment, dealing with a huge crisis, and that crisis, as I described, is seafarers who are trapped, literally physically trapped, by the COVID-19 pandemic. Heidi Diggum is the Director of Maritime Safety at the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, and Jan de Boer is the Senior Legal Officer with the IMO. Jan is currently on holidays in Bulgaria, somewhere in the mountains, but he's been good enough to jump on a Zoom call to talk to us today. And Heike is in London. Welcome to On The Job. Thank you very much for inviting us, Francis. Uh, Thank you very much. It's great to have you both. It's one of the stories that needs to be told around what's happening with the pandemic in terms of seafarers and their predicament. So can I start with uh, you, Haki? Can you give us an overview of of just how many people, how many seafarers are currently either stranded or in, in distress around the world because of the various complications created by the pandemic? When the pandemic started in March uh, last year, of course, it had an effect very quickly on international crew change. Uh, as we know, 50 to 60,000 seafarers exchange uh, crew 
uh, are involved in crew exchanges uh, monthly. So very quickly, there was a big backlog because with the uh, pandemic starting, countries started cancelling flights and closing their borders. So crew change basically became very quickly almost impossible. And the numbers then... Uh, quickly added up. So uh, a few months after March, we had about 400,000 seafarers globally waiting to be uh, either joining ships or being repatriated back home. And uh, while now the number has gone down through lots of hard work to about 200,000, when the Delta variant came in and countries again were much stricter with their regulations uh, for international travel. The number has now risen again to 250,000. So um, it's still uh, very significant and very severe and still needs further work. One of the main problems we had was that this was not concerning maritime administrations, which is the authorities we would normally deal with in IMO. But now health authorities had taken over in the country, internationally, in all countries, basically. And um, for them, seafarers were not a priority at all. Basically, in many countries, seafaring is uh, very much at the back of people's minds. It's not uh, something people normally think about. So one of the first issues we had was uh, to alert people to the problem that internationally exists. And we are still working very hard to get the numbers down, but it is proving to be extremely difficult. Can you give us a profile of, of who these seafarers are? I, I guess our sense of it is that many of them come from countries where low-wage environments, people from, uh, I guess, the global south, as some people might call it, from, from countries where economically their opportunities are very limited. So therefore, lots of people rely on the, the income that these seafarers have, and they probably have less political power, less leverage to actually affect change when it comes to changing their circumstance. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, of course, the uh, major uh, maritime labour supplying countries were uh, affected very much over proportionally compared to other countries in the world, that is the Philippines, as we all know, China, Malaysia, many of the Southeast Asian countries, many South Pacific island states also provide uh, a number of seafarers. But the problem did not only concern what we call seafarers directly, it also affected very much other marine personnel people on oil platforms, supervisors, inspectors, uh, shipbuilding services from classification societies. What we call with the uh, general name marine personnel was very much affected. But ICS, the International Chamber of Shipping, and ITF, the International Transport Workers Federation, very early started uh, uh, supporting these seafarers because, as you said, Sometimes the support from inside the countries was not uh, sufficient. So they started very early to put a lot of pressure. They got in touch with us, with the General Assembly in New York, and tried to push things forward. It is not, it's often thought, a matter of money. Ship owners are quite willing to facilitate crew change, uh, regardless of the costs. It's just that it's almost impossible to actually do something. Can you tell me about what's happening to these seafarers day-to-day? Are they literally just stuck on ships uh, off major ports, just sitting there waiting the days pass day by day by day? That's basically what is happening. Uh, According to the uh, International Maritime Labour Convention, where the ILO is the uh, depositor of that convention, 
the uh, maximum contracts for seafarers should be about 11 months. We have had low number of cases. We had cases where people had been on board for 24 months and stuck on board. Now, on top of the crew change having become impossible, an additional uh, factor was that ports in countries would also not allow shore leave for people on ships. So they were actually stuck on those ships with no means of traveling anywhere, leaving the ship. It's it's a very a very intolerable um, situation for many seafarers, and has led to, as you can imagine, mental stress, mental problems for seafarers. But maybe my colleague Jan de Boer can come in here because he's dealing with uh, individual hardship cases of which we had about roughly 500 since March last year, and he is dealing directly with the affected people. Jan, what are some of the experiences, the really traumatic experiences that you've had to deal with to help people through this crisis? Yes, there were many crews that uh, were already longer than 11 months uh, that are allowed by the ILO standards uh, aboard the ships uh, once they started to find out that they were not going to be changed. So, well, about individual cases, there were uh, in, in the start of the uh, pandemic, yeah, there was a, uh, a huge cruise ship with uh, 400 crew members on board. Uh, the passengers had actually left. And uh, then they found out themselves uh, that they were going to be embarked on another sh- cruise ship actually to get all the crews together. And then they became so worried about uh, the possibility of being infected. So they screamed and came to, to IMO uh, to uh, yeah, actually to get some control about their situation. And, uh, yeah, with the assistance, uh, yeah, of a particular member state, uh, which has a uh, big uh, channel, uh, actually connecting two oceans, say actually, yeah, we're being relieved from, from their difficulties because uh, the ship could continue uh, the voyage through that yeah, channel. Yeah. Another very marking story is about a young woman, seafarer with a young child in Tonga. And actually, she was uh, being trapped on a cruise ship, a sailing uh, ship with with organizing uh, cruises in the Antarctic. And the the bordering countries did not allow for any disembarkment. So in the end, they decided to sail all the way to Europe. And that took them three months while... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the force of their sails. And when they then arrived uh, in Europe, this young woman, she tried to find a repatriation flight back to uh, to Tonka, and it was uh, impossible. It was also impossible actually to fly to neighboring countries. But after four months, she succeeded in having a flight back to New Zealand. But then in New Zealand, there was no way of getting to Tonka. And then she reached out to IMO, and uh, yeah, we received her message and immediately informed the, the Tonka authorities. And by chance, that the uh, representative in uh, London from Tonka had moved uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, he was actually engaged in a whole program of repatriation of Tonkalese uh, seafarers, and actually was then yeah being able to get on the repatriation flight from New Zealand to to Tonka. And yeah, she was so happy when she was reunited with her child because she had been uh, away for nine months. Uh, and that, that is a very remarkable story. Uh, and that shows actually how stressful for, for the human yeah, mental 
health this this can be. It really is. It's um, all these individual little nightmares are captured into this huge cohort of people, a quarter of a million people who are currently <coughs> in limbo. Like, is there any government that's shown a willingness to actually deal with this problem in, in a meaningful way or is it just being pushed to the back burner because people are at sea, they're out of sight, out of mind? Are, they, are these sailors and seafarers and people uh, working in the maritime industry being forgotten completely or is someone actually doing some work to help? We are doing, of course, a lot of outreach uh, activities to alert people to the problem internationally together with the industry and the social partners and uh, governments dealing with this uh, problem individually differently. There are governments that are very much trying to facilitate uh, crew change. We have huge problems with repatriating people from the South Pacific Island countries. Some of the islands have shut down completely. They don't let anyone in or out. And Australia has offered to be a kind of hub in between where uh, seafarers can assemble, stay for a while, and then... uh, we are exploring possibilities to get them back to their island home countries. Also, some European countries are very helpful. The US uh, has a big program of uh, helping. But this is also a changing situation. It, of course, depends on the pandemic situation in the country concerned. And as soon as it gets more serious, travel restrictions are getting more serious. And then it affects again the exchange. That what that goes down, down to details like are these people vaccinated? Do they get easy visa on arrival? Uh, how does the country they are departing from and the country they are arriving at help in these matters? And as I said, unfortunately, seafarers are not in the mind of many people in this regard. We had huge negotiations and discussions with WHO, for instance, since they are administering the vaccination program in the UN system. Seafarers didn't play a role at all in their thinking. They just hadn't thought of it. And uh, that's why we have also launched a big initiative for countries to declare seafarers as key workers, similar to uh, hospital personnel, uh, nurses, doctors. And uh, with that key worker designation, normally comes preferential treatment. But unfortunately, until now of our 170 four member states, uh, only 60 have notified us that they have designated seafarers as key workers. We're keeping this alive all the time, mentioning it, but understandably, countries have other priorities at the moment, and um, seafaring is not one of the focus areas. Yeah, and just from you, are the seafarers losing hope in all of this? I mean, how are they how are they surviving day to day? Is there how do you resupply a ship with these people being offshore? How are they managing to maintain any sort of optimism that they are going there's going to be a solution to their problem? Yeah, it's uh, really hard uh, for for the seafarers, but when they uh, reach out to IMO and say cat response you see that they are living up. And then it's, of course, also important yeah, to not make too concrete promises, but actually to inform them 
uh, how they also can uh, act themselves by approaching uh, relevant organizations and also uh, their own national administration. But meanwhile, uh, we do the same thing and we tell them. And actually, uh, we have a kind of uh, correspondence then with the seafarers on board. So what we see from this process, and we are relatively quite successful, that they are very thankful when they are being uh, uh, helped. So that's the nice part actually of doing this because uh, it's rewarding uh, to have uh, solutions for these people. But I can tell you what we uh, see for kind of uh, stories that people are very uh, depressed and distressed and uh, there are also people committing suicide. Uh, it's happening. And we, we do all, of course, to give some hope for these people to, uh, to go through these hard times. And it's also by way of publications on our website of IMO that, yeah, these people can find similar stories uh, of their own. So they can also in those stories read that uh, when they do approach IMO, that, that there is a way to find uh, a resolution. But of course, we cannot break uh, iron uh, with our hands when borders are closed and uh, many ships are actually struck. But also with our communication with the ship owners, we tried actually to uh, orchestrate some diplomatic action in getting the the solutions. But I can tell you that... uh, yeah, for seafarers, uh, life can be very hard uh, at the moment. And it is also for the people who cannot join their ships because they become desperate. That say there's a similar number of these 250,000 that are actually waiting to join their ships uh, who become desperate that they do not get the income from the families. And so also writing to us. So that's the same story. So if you double up, you can see it's quite an, uh, yeah, a huge proportion of, uh, of the labor force worldwide that is being affected by, uh, by the crisis. Seafarers, by the nature of their job, are quite a resilient bunch. And, and they are used to fend for themselves because traveling around the world is not easy, even in good times. So they are quite resourceful people. But as Jan said, they are now reaching the end of their tether with this. It's difficult. And we are also fearing that this might have an effect on on future generations of seafarers because many people that have gone through this kind of situation will definitely think twice whether they will continue their career at sea. Indeed. And just to finish, I mean, the one other aspect of this which we haven't discussed is the global supply chain. I mean, people just expect when they order something online that it's going to be on a plane or on a ship and it's going to arrive to them and they don't think much about how it gets there and who brings it and and, you know, what circumstances under which their goods travel. Is the international supply chain under serious stress, Heike, because of this situation with seafarers, A, not being able to cruise ships and also be those crews that are stuck and marooned on ships that, that can't move? Actually, uh, from our contacts in the ports, we are also working closely with port organizations. Uh, the, the global supply chains have been remarkably little affected by all of this. The reason being that seafarers have stayed on beyond their contracts for months. On And of course, also ship owners and, and ship management organizations rewarding them accordingly for this. But there is a limit, of course, how much you can pay people to stay for, for two years on board a ship. So, um, yeah, the global supply chains have run quite smoothly uh, despite of everything. 
different for the tourism sector, for instance. Cruise ships, of course, as we all know, basically the cruise sector has come to a complete standstill. And uh, the efforts uh, in recent months to revive it have not always been successful. Despite all the measures taken to uh, prevent infections, there are always still COVID cases uh, discovered on board ships. It's quite amazing how this virus works, actually. But for the supply chains, of course, we had in between, we had also the accident in the Suez Canal with the uh, Ever Given. And that has brought it back to many people that actually keeping the global supply chains open should be a high priority for all of the countries. And Jan, just to finish on that, to keep those supply chains open, we need to first and foremost look after the people, don't we, that are that are working on these ships and make sure that they are our number one priority. Now, that's, of course, absolutely true, uh, that the welfare of the, the seafarers is, is a top priority also, yeah, to keep the stream uh, ongoing. But what we also see happening is that there are very deliberate choices uh, which ships to serve and, and which not to handle. And uh, we see, especially in Southeast Asia, these this patterns of trade, which make some of these ships, uh, transporting particular goods, uh, suffer. And those claimants come to IMO, and uh, it's very hard for IMO actually to find the appropriate uh, solution because it's also a commercial matter that, that is at stake with charter party clauses that actually make crew changes uh, difficult because uh, they want the crew to remain on board because there are valuable goods uh, actually waiting to be unloaded. And, and actually that can be far more due than the actually labor contract. So uh, for IMO and for ILO, the main and the important issue is the decent working conditions for uh, the, the seafarers and uh, that's what we stand for and it's what we stand for as well and i want to thank you both so much for making some time for us today to discuss this issue and, and for us to raise it for an australian audience that uh, as an island nation we depend on our shipping lanes to be open and to our, for our seafarers to be well paid and looked after and we will keep making sure that we uh, fight their corner from our end of the world Jan, thank you so much for being on the job Heike, thank you as well Thank you very much, Francis. It's good for us to bring these points forwards and and more into the international awareness of, of this huge problem. Thanks to Heike Degen, the chair of the International Maritime Organization Seafarers Crisis Action Team, and also Jan de Boer, who is part of that team. Joining us here today, Jan was dialing in from the mountains of Bulgaria. Heike from London just shows what a global issue this is. And Australia is very much part of this story, part of this problem as well. As an island continent, we rely on seafarers and maritime traffic for all the goods that we expect to turn up on our shelves or when we order something online. And there are lots of ships in Australia at the moment who are dealing with the very same problem that uh, Heike and Jan pointed out. Ian Bray is from the International Transport Federation. Ian, welcome to On The Job. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. Can you fill us in on what's happened here in Australia? Now, there's been a recent fatality at sea which drives home the reality of what's happening with seafarers around the world and here on our doorstep. What's occurred? Well, as a result of COVID, probably... You know, best intentions, but various states who have primary control over, you know, their own uh, jurisdictions have issued orders through their chief health officers around the, the country. And 
again, I say with best intentions, but unfortunately, it's got to a stage where there is no uniformity amongst the states. And I'd say very seriously, a lack of leadership from the federal government has not managed to put consistency amongst how certain industries are to behave in dealing with COVID and dealing with changes to the workplace as a result of these health orders. So what we have in Australia at the moment is a situation where all of the states have put out various decrees about how crew changes are to occur. And because of the recent outbreaks, we've got to a stage where the only state that's facilitating crew changes in this country at the very minute is Queensland. So shipping companies are diverting to Queensland to facilitate crew changes. But because of that, some ships are actually diverting to Queensland without the requirement to call into a Queensland port. So on those instances, they're not going to pay, you know, towage fees, pilot fees, berth fees, et cetera, et cetera. In this particular case where the fatality occurred, they attempted to crew change the crew out at sea. Now, what happens there is the on-signers, those joining the ship, get on a launch and they would go out to sea five miles or so and they would have to climb up a pilot ladder and then the off-signers, those going home, would have to climb down that pilot ladder. Now, it's during that operation that one of the seafarers climbing down, so one of the guys that had been on there 10 or 12 months looking forward to going home was climbing down the ladder, and for whatever reason, he's had a fall, and it's inconclusive whether it was a faulty ladder, the ladder snapped or he fell. It's inconclusive whether he had a clear fall to the water or whether he hit the launch below and then was retrieved. But as a result, he lost his life. Now, I say, and many agree, that had that ship or had New South Wales, which is the state that the ship was going to, the port was Newcastle, I believe, had that uh, state facilitated crew changes like Queensland, that ship would have proceeded down the coast for another 30 hours or so. They would have tied up alongside. There would have been customs go on board and clear the ship and the cargo so it could be worked and all of those usual things, and then the crew change would have been facilitated. That guy would have walked down a gangway. He probably would have gone into a bus. He probably would have got to a hotel where he would be in uh, quarantine for the duration that he's required to quarantine, probably laying on a bed right now watching television. Instead, he's lying on a slab in the morgue because of the desperation the lack of understanding, I think, of the maritime industry by government officials and their complete disregard for engagement with experts in the maritime industry as to what would be best practice for crew changes. It's a disastrous consequence and, and it's an appalling thought to think that a worker is having to put themselves at risk just to go home like that. Uh, and uh, as you said, the consequences are fatal uh, for this man and, of course, his family and loved ones and his crewmates and everyone involved. Uh, it, the, the wider picture also is that these crews are still out there on Australian waters, sitting out there, unable to work as they normally would, stuck on ships, unable to go home to their to their host countries. Just how widespread is the problem on Australian waters, Ian? Well, we've been managing it, you know, for the last four months. I say that because around about July last year, there was a global crew change crisis. 
where there was up to 400,000 seafarers stuck on their ships, unable to get home because of a lack of will through not only the Australian government, but governments around the globe, not focusing on, you know, the crisis that they've developed through their own, you know, their own health orders. So we got those seafarers off when COVID sort of was disrupted for a period of time here. Everybody had some kind of normalcy around the country. There was a few spot fires with it uh, and it managed to settle down a little bit. Other countries became more progressive in trying to tackle the crew change crisis. So we averted any kind of longevity in this crisis. But what's happening now, those seafarers at that time got off and other seafarers joined. And in the international maritime industry, seafarers signed contracts for around about nine to 11 months. So the standards ran about 10 months, minus a month or plus a month. So we say 11. And what we're seeing now as we go up ships is a lot of these seafarers are into that 11th and 12th month. So we imagine that the crisis is going to reinvent itself. If you like, the second wave of a crew change crisis is just about on our doorstep. The problem is that uh, 10 months, 12 months down the track, COVID's taken a foothold in various states, various states uh, being very reactive to that. And, you know, there's a little bit of legitimacy in that as well. But again, the seafarers will be by and largely ignored. And I expect the number of crew members seeking to get off ships and laying complaint through Maritime Labor Convention is going to increase exponentially in the next month or two. Just to finish, what's the morale and mental health and and the the welfare of these seafarers who are stuck in basically what have become uh, prison hulks by by default at the moment? How are they travelling? What do you understand about where their sort of mental and physical state is at? Uh, Well, I would say it is at an all-time low. There was a report that was put out in the last week or so, I haven't managed to get my eyes around it yet, but um, it's done by the Mission to Seafarers. It's a global report. It's a fairly nightmarish report in terms of what they're finding. Hunter Link say there's a rise in seafarers that go through their doors, you know, or on the phone to council. There's uh, suicide rates are going up exponentially. And I just can't believe that all of this is occurring. It's not hitting the eyes and the ears that, of those that make the decisions. And this is how we treat the people that have kept the global economy afloat for the past 18 months. If it wasn't for seafarers, the world would be in a much more bleaker place now during COVID had ships have stopped. And this is how we treat them. I just find it absolutely absurd. What should be done? If you could pull the levers of power here to try to alleviate the crisis for seafarers who are in this predicament, what are the first steps that Australia needs to take to make sure it's looking after those people? I think the egos need to leave the room. That's the first thing. And I know everybody's got a bit of pride in, you know, their own government agencies and the decisions that they make. And, you know, they generally try to do the best for the community. But seafarers are, by extension, part of that community because of the role they play in delivering trade. So I think we have to get all of those egos out the room and look towards not what is the problem, um, because we know what the problem is, it's COVID, Um, but we need to look at what the solutions could be. There is a best practice in Australia. Queensland have a well-structured and well-versed system in place for facilitating crew changes in Australia. 
And I just want to note that last week when they were in lockdown, there was 300 seafarers that came and went off ships whilst Queenslanding was in lockdown. And there wasn't one community transmission of COVID from the community to a seafarer, nor one transmission of COVID from a seafarer into the community. Now, if they can do that in a lockdown and they can facilitate those crew changes and have done for the duration of for this pandemic, and they can put the facilitation of trade alongside equally as important as the humanitarian aspects of the industry, there's no excuse for any other state nor the federal government to say it's too hard. So we've got an example here in this country that we could learn from that would be a great start. The second thing we need to do is we've got to vaccinate. And the race at the moment in this country is to get Australia vaccinated. Well, I can't understand why not a single state nor the federal government has earmarked that vaccination program for the international seafarers that come here. Because even if we get vaccinated, these ships are going to keep coming. And if these seafarers don't become part of the vaccination rollout globally, just not Australia, we're forever at risk of community transmission. So are these people going to be stuck on their ships forever and a day because we haven't got a solution to, or we're not generous enough to say, we'll extend the vaccination program to the seafarers? And other countries now, America's vaccinating seafarers, international seafarers, Holland is vaccinating seafarers. There's a whole plethora now of countries that are have realised what I'm saying and are putting it into practice, but Australia remains ignorant to it. Now, I'll leave you on this part, though. We're told we have to vaccinate our way out of a pandemic. We're told we have to trade our way out of economic uncertainty. The two things aren't mutually exclusive because if you want to shore up the trade and therefore the economic recovery that we have to have once we get, you know, post-COVID, seafarers still have a vital role to play. But yet... 18 months down the track, not one person in government has raised any concerns about how we're going to deal with these seafarers coming to our shores, even if we're vaccinated and they're not. Ian, thank you so much for being on the job and uh, we'll keep uh, across this story uh, over the next little while, make sure that uh, it isn't forgotten because it's such an important one. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, mate. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Ian Bray there from the International Transport Federation talking to us about the Australian situation when it comes to seafarers on our oceans and seas. Uh, You can check out more about what they do if you search International Transport Federation through whichever search engine you like to use. And we want to thank Heike and Jan from earlier in the program as well from the International Maritime Organization of the United Nations. Thank you for being with us this week. Hey, if you do love the podcast, you must do if you've come this far. If you've come this far into the pod, you are into it. You are one of our people. We need you. We need you to give us a review, uh, and uh, if you're an Apple podcast or whatever it is, just write a review, give us this five-star treatment. It helps other people find the information and the inspiration and boosts us up the charts, all that sort of stuff. You know the rigmarole, but we really do appreciate your reviews and your feedback. We will be back next week with another edition of On The Job. My name is Francis Leach. Take care. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>